Amen. Well, uh, forgive me for the sniffles. I'm probably going to be doing that a lot. I don't know how to stop doing that. Um, so you just guys, you don't have to be patient with me. Um, today we are we're going to be in Isaiah chapter five. So if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn over there. Um, Isaiah chapter five is all about God's holy righteousness. It's also about God's judgment. Uh, in a sense, it's timely because for the last couple of weeks. Uh, there have been some major sports stories that have sort of crossed over the lines into, into popular culture stories, into ethics stories. Of course, I'm talking about the Manti Teo situation and the Lance Armstrong interviews where he finally fessed up to all that he'd done. One of the fascinating things about the reaction to each of these stories is the way that we just can't help but put ourselves into the place of the judge and the jury. We can't help but pass judgments on what, who knew what and when, on what that means about their character. We can't help but wonder, you know, did, was Tao in on this scan? If you don't know what I'm talking about, sorry, you can, you can just Google it when you get home and you'll see what I'm talking about. But Manti Tao, was he in on this scandal or was he totally uh, gypped by it? Was Lance Armstrong, does, does, the, does the good that he's done through his philanthropy outweigh the scumbag that he is? That's the kind of questions that everybody's asking. I've seen these things in articles. One of my favorites was a, a series of letters written back and forth between Malcolm Gladwell and Chuck Klosterman, who are two sort of popular culture analysts, really interesting, funny guys. And um, ESPN.com ran a series of emails to themselves, from one to the other, uh, back and forth, back and forth, just as the Manti Tail story was, was breaking, and they were bringing in the Lance Armstrong interview and showing that one of the key questions all of us has got to answer is, does this upstanding, do-gooder type image and track record that both of these guys have outweigh the fact that they've done wrong if they've done wrong? The reason I bring it up is that it's interesting to me how quickly and inevitably we jump into that role of judge and jury, how quickly we pass judgment, especially on those who seem upstanding it's almost like we love to expose people as frauds. Maybe it makes us feel better about ourselves. And what interests me so much about that, in light of what we're going to study this morning, is how we naturally go into this role that we, I think, just as naturally resent the idea of God having. That wasn't a great sentence, so let me try that again. We naturally pass judgments, but we bristle at the idea that God is revealed to us as a judge. That he is revealed to us as someone who cares deeply at the core of who he is, at the center of his identity, for right and wrong, and for judging wrong wherever it shows up. The problem for us is that if we, if we ever hope to confront and understand, sort of internalize a book like Isaiah, we've got to figure out how to handle messages of God's judgment because to do Isaiah justice it's everywhere it's all over this book and we're going to confront the issue head on today this portion of our series in Isaiah if you haven't been with us for the past few weeks we're taking the the, the book and breaking it down not in order sort of from chapter 1 to chapter 66 but by themes and the first major theme that we're trying to understand is what Isaiah tells us about God. And we've, we've categorized all of what Isaiah tells us about God under the big heading of God's 
holiness. Holy being a word that just means not normal. It means godness. It means what separates him from, from us, uh, from everything that is familiar to us, that he's beyond and above all that comes natural and familiar to us. He's holy. And in the last couple of weeks, we've been trying to show specific things about God that make him holy. And today, we're going to see that his righteousness, or what I've been calling his holy perfection, is at the center of what makes God not like us. Because even though we, by our consciences, do what's right sometimes, or do we demand that what's right be done towards us, we demand justice when it suits us, God is always committed to what's right and what's just, and he's committed to it perfectly and without fail. He's invariably committed to what's right. And this makes him utterly unlike us, beyond our world. That's the main thing we're going to talk about today. It's going to take almost the entire sermon. That's what this whole passage is about. But we're not going to end there. We're going to conclude by looking ahead to the promises that are coming for us, the promises that Jesus fulfills, because this passage about God's holy perfection sets us up to understand why the promise that we will be made like him, that we will be able to share his holiness, that it will be given to us as a gift, becomes so much more sweet. That's where we're headed this morning. First, that God is not like us. That's what I'm calling the threat of God's holy perfection. And that's the whole passage of Isaiah 5. Then, the promise that will be made like him. The promise of his holy perfection. That's where we're headed this morning. If you found the passage, Isaiah 5, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to read verses 8 to 25 this morning. This is the word of the Lord through the prophet Isaiah. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there's no more room, and you're made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, Surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath, and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late in the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of his hands. Therefore, my people go into exile for lack of knowledge. Their honored men go hungry and their multitude is parched with thirst. Therefore, Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and her multitude will go down, her revelers and he who exults in her. Man is humbled and each one is brought low. And the eyes of the haughty are brought low. But the Lord of hosts is exalted in justice, and the holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. Then shall lambs graze as in their pasture, and nomads shall eat among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes, who say, let him be quick, let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and let it come that we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, 
who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Therefore, as the tongue of fire devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down in the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and have despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. God is not like us, because he is holy in his perfection. The thrust of this passage, it should have been pretty clear as we read through it, is a sort of anatomy of Judah's sin before God sent the nations that were surrounding them to judge them and take them off into exile. And even more to the point, the thrust of our passage is a promise of God's judgment. It breaks down into a series of woes. Did you notice that? A lot of the verses start with woe. It's sort of a funeral cry. Uh, Here's the judgment that's going to come on. Here, here, Here is what it is that's bringing you down. And then a series of therefores. You've got woes, Describe Judah's sin and therefores that describe the consequence of their sin and, and how God plans to judge them, why God must judge them. Instead of walking through this passage verse by verse all in a row, I want to take the woes as a unit and the therefores as a unit. Because when we do it that way, I think we can see what this passage is mainly about. It's about how different God is from us. And what sets him apart from us is in large part his perfect commitment to what's right and our, at best, mediocre, self-serving commitment to what is right. Ultimately, the point is we justify sin and God judges sin, which is to say he is not like us, but holy in his righteousness. The woes that describe Judah's sin and ours. I think you're going to sound pretty familiar. There's a lot of, there's a lot of details about, these, about what's described here that are separate from our time because they were rooted in, in the law that was given directly to Israel and is not given to us, rooted in the culture of that time and not in ours. But I think it's going to sound pretty familiar. The woes begin in verse 8. It starts with those who are given over to greed. The reference here is to those who join house to house and field to field until there's no more room. What he's, what he's talking about is, is, is rooted in the law that was given to Israel through Moses. In that law, God had given the land, the promised land, to specific tribes. Certain sections of it went to certain families. And it was meant to be a perpetual land grant to those families. God was the ultimate owner of the land. No one else could own it. But he gives a permanent grant to this family. Now, if hard times were to come and the family needed to sell that land to get out of debt or something like that, they could do it. But there were these built-in years that all the land that had been sold off would revert back to its family so that every so often it was like a hard reset. 
and the, the, the land as given by God would, would, would be established again. The point of that system was to keep people trusting in God and not in how much land they had and to remind people that this land that they used to, to build their life on was ultimately God's and was given to them at his pleasure, not because they deserved it. It was to keep people depending on God. And what happened, according to verse 8, is that the wealthy and the powerful had abused the system. They had begun to buy up land and never return it. They had begun to join house to house and field to field. The imagery is so strong, isn't it? They've done this so much that they're basically the only people who live in their neighborhood now. They live alone in the land because they had gobbled it all up. They took the land for their own as if it weren't God's and as if they weren't dependent on him. Obviously, there's difference here between their context and ours. But even granting the difference in the era, there's no avoiding this question. Does the way that you gain and spend your money reflect trust in God and care for the need of others? The next woe shifts from greed to self-indulgence. It comes in verse 11. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run after strong drink who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. Basically, it's a, it's a judgment on those who live for nothing more than self-indulgence. They live for nothing more than satisfying their desires for pleasure, for the next great experience. Here, alcohol abuse is the example of this larger pattern of just self-indulgence. And what is, the way that the text is phrased, basically what it's saying is they get up in the morning because of alcohol and they stay awake because of alcohol. What gets them out of bed and what keeps them going is the, is the thought that they can satisfy this intense urge that they have, that they can give themselves and find for themselves pleasure. The point is that they are so inebriated by pleasure that they're blind to what God is doing. That's what, that's what verse 12 continues to say blinded by their by their absolute devotion getting up and running after pleasing themselves they don't see the deeds of the lord or see the work of his hand i think the point is that they don't see that they are the work of his hand that they exist because he chose to give them existence that they exist for him not to seek their own pleasure not to constantly run after the next great experience but to live for something bigger and better to live as if God is worthy of everything they have to live for him and not for themselves what's your grid for making decisions what sounds good what doesn't sound like fun What do I get out of it? The question is, do you regard, do you have any regard for the fact that you are the work of God's hands? That what God is doing in the world is the ultimate standard for what you should be doing in the world. For what should get you out of bed in the morning. What should keep you going through the day. So what is that? What gets you up and keeps you going? Does it have anything to do with the fact that you were made by and for the Lord of the universe. The next woe comes a little further down in verses 18 to 23. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. This is an image that I didn't get immediately. Maybe you haven't gotten it yet either. But it's, it's an image that stands for what comes in these next few verses. And it's at the heart of the human condition, of which Judah is a great example, but which is it's true of us too. 
begins with an image and then fleshes out what the image meant. So the image is, is one of who, who is bound to sin, who is in bondage to it. So sin is this cart that you're pulling, right? It says that you're, that my, my woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood and draw sin. So what, what it does is it places these, the ones that the woe is directed against, as like the, the ox pulling the cart. And you're drawing the cart that is sin or iniquity and what holds you to it what holds you in bondage to it are cords of falsehood and deceit. Get the image in your mind? Imagine yourself carrying along a great burden and you don't even realize you're doing it because what binds you to this burden is itself self-deception. The rest of the verses that come next show what it looks like. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. You've changed the terms. You've set your own standards over against God's. You've You've replaced truth with falsehood. And in, this, in that process, you don't even see that you're drawing sin, that you're in bondage to it because you've changed the rules so that it doesn't show. You make darkness as if it's light and light for darkness. Verse 21 says it's, it's, it's basically becoming wise in your own eyes and shrewd in your own sight. Verse 24 says it's essentially replacing God's law, rejecting the law of the Lord of hosts with your own. You see the overall picture? We are in bondage to sin because we have so changed what good and evil represent by our own law, wise in our own eyes, rejecting the law of God, that we don't even recognize we're in bondage half the time. That's what makes it so dangerous. We all have the tendency to call good evil and evil good. We have the tendency to say things like, it isn't really gossip. It's just a friend sharing a concern with another dear friend, another confidant about a mutual friend. It isn't really pornography. It's just a believable, maybe even inevitable step in a story arc of this mainstream film, right? We are wise in our own eyes and we despise the law of the Lord. And the biggest thing that makes it dangerous for us is that we don't see it. Do you feel okay about yourself right now? You don't feel like this, this picture describes you? Well, the very nature of the sin that's being described here is a failure to see it. It's in bondage to things that have deceived you. Cords that are not identifiable by you. Be careful, in other words, if your sin isn't troubling you now because it's a sign that you're still its slave, that you're still blind to it, that you're still living by standards you have redefined so that you're sure to fulfill them, so that you're in no danger of falling short. To return to an analogy I used the other, a couple weeks back, I think the way most of us approach our moral lives, by nature anyway, is as most people approach driving in traffic. The speed limit is a nice rough guide, but what ultimately determines how fast we go is how fast everybody else is going. And as long as we're trying to driving with the traffic, a lot of times our apathy, maybe, maybe I'm the only one in here who's, who's prone to this, but I doubt it, our apathy just kind of keeps us going. And, as, and, and we fit with the flow, and so we've sort of deceived ourselves into thinking that there's no danger here until we come over the hill and there's the cops sitting in the, in the woods next to the interstate, right? And then all of a sudden our standards get redefined again and we're caught, right? We are seen, and the, the cords of falsehood that have been drawing us, 
or we've been using to draw our sin, however that image works for you. They're shattered, and we see ourselves for who we really are. Isaiah had one of those moments in Isaiah 6 that we talked about a couple weeks ago. But until we see God for who he is, until we are caught by the cops sitting in the trees, we're content to just drive with the traffic, to do what seems right to us, to justify and redefine what right and wrong actually are. It's hard for me not to read and think about this, this picture of what sin is like. It's hard for me not to read it and think about it this week in light of the, the Lance Armstrong interviews. I don't know if you guys saw them. Uh, I didn't actually get to see them, but I read them afterwards. And it's like playing out almost in, in the transcript, you see this structure of sin and deception playing out in his life. Armstrong, to continue the analogy, got caught speeding, Right? He had been driving with the traffic. Maybe even out in front a little bit, but it was okay because others were following in his wake. They were doing the same things that he was. It was normalized by his standards. And then he got exposed. You might say it before his exposure, he was drawing his sin with cords of falsehood. He was bound to it. And he didn't even see it. One of the most revealing answers in the transcript of that interview was, when Oprah asked him if it seemed wrong to him at the time. She listed off all the things that he had done, you know, taking the drugs, doing the transfusions to hide it, bullying people who would challenge him. And his answer to the question of whether or not it seemed wrong to him at the time was simply and honestly, no. What's even more eerily parallel to what our text says is that it's something that that Armstrong said about a decade ago, a little more than a decade ago, in a memoir that he wrote. I read a column this last week that pointed me to this. It quoted him in his memoir. Here's what he says. At the end of the day, if there was indeed some body or presence standing there to judge me, talking about if there was a God, I hoped I would be judged on whether I had lived a true life not on whether I believed in a certain book or whether I've been baptized. Armstrong is basically inviting God's judgment here. I hope that if there is a God, he will judge me based on how I've lived. Sounds a lot like verse 19, doesn't it? Those who are drawing iniquity with cords of falsehood, who don't even see their own sin, say, let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. And let it come that we may know it. Let him come and judge us. He's betting, Armstrong is, just as Israel did, that God won't be holy. That instead he'll be like us. He's betting that this book he's opted against in favor of a true life, this certain book that he thinks is less important than living a true life, what he's betting is that this book he's opted against won't end up being the measure of a true life, the key to defining a true life clearly, the standard against which he'll be judged. That's what he's betting against. Who knows how he slept at night? Maybe he was drawing his sin by cords of falsehood that made him unable to see the hypocrisy of his actions. Maybe he had not seen it as wrong because he thought, you know, this 
performance enhancer helps me to be better, which helps me to make more money for my philanthropy, which helps me to help more people. So in the end, it, it all works out. Maybe he saw his life's goal as outweighing bad with good or in justifying the means. But the bottom line is, he was betting against the holiness of God. He was despising God's law in favor of his own. And that's a deadly, deadly wager. That's the other main theme of our text today. Is that to make this bet, to invite the Holy One of Israel to come near and judge us, the way that we've been living on our own standards, to make that bet that he won't have different standards than we do, is to, is to invite your own death. God cares deeply about sin and his holiness is defined largely by how he will respond to sin. The emphasis here in chapter 5 is on God judging. The way you know he's committed to, his, to, to what's right is how he responds to what's wrong. The proof of his holiness, in other words, is how utterly and thoroughly he is committed to running evil out of the world. Throughout this passage, it's shown by the therefores I mentioned before. I want to just walk through a couple of them. What these therefores do is they expose false claims. The judgment is meant to expose the false claims made by those that the woes talked about. And then it's meant to show that that his judgment is total, that it goes as far as the sin, that it wipes clean everything that stands against God. I want to show it to you as clearly as possible through these examples, knowing that it, it, it may be challenging your view of what God is like and it may be distasteful. If, if that's the way you're feeling, as I give you these examples, I want you to hold that thought because we're going to talk about it afterwards. But first, the examples. Let's see the text for what it is and not sugarcoat it. The therefores begin, or the, the, the God's commitment to exposing falsehood begins in verse 9. This is one of those punishment-fitting-the-crime statements. So if the wicked are guilty of joining house to house and field to field and, and amassing all of this property for themselves, the way God plans to judge them is by emptying their houses, making them desolate and without inhabitant, by, by making the lands they have amassed yield nothing. Bottom line is that The land hungry will go hungry, according to verses 9 and 10. Verse 13, there's another one. This therefore follows that picture of self-indulgence. Verse 11 and 12, it told us about those who get up in the morning and stay going just to feed their own desires, especially with alcohol. Those who have given themselves over to self-indulgence, God will expose this false life by giving them over to thirst. He will take away the thing they had lived for. That's what verse 13 says. The multitude is parched with thirst. He will give them over to an appetite that's even larger and more all-consuming than their own, verse 14 says. He will give them over to Sheol, a word for the place of the dead. Here's the way one commentator put it. I thought this was really well put. The judgment of the sensualists, those who give their lives just to pursuing what they want, their pleasure, will be to lose the one thing they've lived for. It'll be to go thirsty for those who've lived for drink. And to find themselves the object of an even more insatiable appetite than their own. Verse 14 says that Sheol has enlarged its appetite and opened its mouth beyond measure and all will go down into it. The nobility of Jerusalem and all of her multitude. You see the point? Those who live 
to satisfy their own appetites will be a meal for death. God will expose their false life. The last example I'll give you is in verses 24 and 25. This is one of the examples that shows not not so much God exposing or sort of punishment fitting the crime, but how complete God's commitment to judging evil actually is. As the tongue of fire devours, devours the stubble and as dry grass sinks down into the flame, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom go up like the dust. Basically, they had invited the Holy One of Israel, to come quick, to come close, to come near, to do it now. Evaluate us, judge us, see if we pass the test. And this is how quickly he will dismiss them. Like fire in a field full of dry grass, they will be gone as if they never existed. Verse 25 continues that imagery. God's anger against his people is like an earthquake that shakes even the mountains. The most stable of all things we can imagine in our experience on this earth will be shaken by the force of God's fury against all who would despise his law in place of their own. The image is of corpses filling the streets like trash because as in so many earthquakes that you can even see, especially in places that are susceptible, especially in in Asia, for example, the imagery of bodies just lying around is an imagery of complete and total death. There's not anyone left to collect the bodies and bury them. That's why they lie there. Everyone is gone. And even then, verse 25 says, for all this, for all this complete destruction, even then his anger has not turned away and his hand is outstretched still. In some, I think a great summary of our picture of, of God as judge, of God as holy in his moral perfection, comes in verses 15 and 16. Here's the point. Man is humbled, each one is brought low, but the Lord of hosts is exalted in his justice. The holy God shows himself holy in righteousness. That's the point. This is just one of many places where Isaiah says basically the same thing. A whole chunk of chapters that come soon after this we won't even look at in our series is God pronouncing this kind of judgment on every one of Israel's neighboring nations. All of the ones who were big and kind of bullied Israel, they were sort of the, the superpowers of the day. Every single one of them gets a chapter where God promises this same kind of judgment to expose their arrogance. It's all over the book. We're just choosing one example. We could, choo- we could have chosen many more. And this picture of God can be hard to swallow, right? It's one of the things that makes Isaiah hard to swallow because it's so full of pictures like this of God. I think it's never been harder to swallow than in our time and in our place. In the history of the world, this picture of God has never made less sense or been harder to swallow than it is for us at this time in this place. I think there are two main ways we could respond to this. Two main things in our mind that, that could not sit well with us. Two main reasons this wouldn't sit well with us, rather. I want to mention both of them, sort of describe it, see if that's where you are. And then I want to offer a really brief response, something I'd love to follow up with you on later, uh, because we don't have that much time today. I think there are good answers. We'll see if this is where you are. For some of us, it may be this image of a God who's holy and holy righteousness demands that he come in judgment, absolute judgment, Sparing no one judgment. For some of us, that kind of wrath seems unworthy of God. 
seems unworthy of God. Our image of God, if we believe in him this morning, is likely skewed towards love and mercy. And his love and mercy, that's a beautiful aspect of his character. It's one of the central things the Bible tells us about him. It's going to be what we talk about next week. It's one of the main things that makes him holy and not like us. Is the quality of his love and his mercy. And judgment and vengeance to those of us who sort of trend towards his love and mercy. Judgment and vengeance can seem really petty, kind of beneath him. Almost cruel. In other words, this kind of picture of wrath can seem to make God the opposite of holy. It seems to make him like us, not different from us. It seems beneath him. And I think we react that way because we miss that God is not like us. And here's what I mean. He is holy in his perfection and his judgment shows that. See, when we react in wrath, which we all do, right? We all know what wrath is like. Even those of us who aren't prone to, to often regular anger, we know it sometimes. When, it, when, when something affects us or those that we love, we respond with wrath. But when we do that, when we respond that way, it's always, at its best, at its best, it's always a mixed bag, right? It's always mixed in with, with wounded pride, with defensiveness, with insecurity, and it's always hypocritical in some sense because we are, we are angry at someone as if we weren't guilty of doing the same things that they are in other, in other contexts. Our, our wrath is always mixed with hypocrisy, a hypocrisy that suggests they're not like us and therefore we should react to them this way. But when God expresses wrath, he's holy. He's not like us. His wrath against wrong comes from a perfect and sincere commitment to what's right. He isn't sadistic. He isn't cruel. He has not an ounce of hypocrisy in him. In fact, far from being unworthy of God, these pictures of God as as one who judges what's wrong are the reason he's worthy of our worship. And I think we even know that. As much as we might like to think otherwise, I think there's a place in us that knows this is right. This last week, the, uh, the Catholic uh, clerical abuse, sexual abuse issues have been back in the news because through one of the discovery process and one of the cases, I guess, uh, some letters have come from the, the cardinal over the Los Angeles diocese, I guess is what it was, um, writing about someone who had been, who'd been caught in the act, writing about covering it up by not taking it to the authorities and by just moving this guy to a different place, right? And when we hear that, we immediately instinctively know that that reaction, the, the benevolence shown to the guilty party, is not a good thing. Is not to be celebrated. The correct reaction to hearing that these children had been abused was a kind of holy wrath by this person in authority who had the, had the chance to do something about it. And we look at the fact that he looked the other way as a reason for him to, to, to be exposed, not as a reason to celebrate him. It's because somewhere in us, we still, we still know that those who are in authority have to be held to right and they have to hold those under their authority to right if they're to be worthy. We know why he probably did it. Maybe he knew the guy. Maybe he'd had him over for dinner and thought that he was a pretty good guy. Maybe he didn't want the church to be dragged through the mud. But the problem with this cardinal who covered up the scandal, the problem is that this, this authority wasn't holy in righteousness. The problem 
is that he was like us. Mixed. Confused. Imperfect. But it's not that way with God. God's desire and commitment to judge wrong wherever it shows its face is the clearest proof of his love for what's right and it makes him worthy of worship. Sometimes the clearest proof of our love comes when the object of our love is threatened. The way that we react to it. What good is my claim to love my wife and children if I am not wrathfully disposed towards anything that threatens them? It's an empty claim, isn't it? We think God's wrath makes, or this picture is unworthy of God, but it's actually what makes him worthy of worship. He is not like this cardinal in Los Angeles who looked the other way. Maybe that isn't your issue. Maybe when you hear this picture, see this picture of God, his wrath seems unworthy of us. Maybe it's not that it seems unworthy of God, beneath him, but it seems unworthy of us and the kind of God that we want, the kind of God that we think we deserve, the kind of God that we want to believe in and worship. We may feel, in other words, that when we we read this picture of a God who sends his wrath quaking even the mountains and leaving the streets full of bodies that no one's alive to collect and bury, that that God is not the kind of God I could ever worship. I don't want to worship a God who could do that. It seems primitive, barbaric even. Let me say quickly, something I've said before, the Bible is only useful if it's able to contradict what comes natural to you. If the Bible just confirms everything you already think anyway, what's the point of reading it? The Bible is useful because it's it is, the, it is a medium for a relationship with someone who gets to contradict you. All good, meaningful human relationships have give and take in them, right? What good is a Stepford wife who can never object to anything that you say, who can never see things differently or push back? That's not a real relationship. It's an empty one, right? Similarly with God, this, this word comes to us for him as his side of our relationship. And if it can't ever contradict us or seem unnatural to us, it's of no use to us. In fact, some of the places where it seems least right to us by nature are the places where it can do us the most good. It's exposing places in us that need to be challenged. Places where our culture is driving how we think more than God and his word to us. Say that quickly. And next, let me appeal to your reason. If your response to this picture of God's wrath is, I just don't want to worship a God who's like that then let me say to you, humbly and respectfully, but honestly, whether or not this idea of a God of wrath tastes good to you is immaterial. It's not even a reasonable question to ask. Whether or not you like this picture of God is beside the point. It doesn't matter whether you want to imagine or worship a God like this. What matters is whether he exists. Read Isaiah 40, verse 12 and following that we looked at last week. If this God exists, and he's the God who holds all the waters of the universe in the palm of his hand, if he's the one who stretched out the skies and still measures them with the span of the thumb to his his pinky finger, 
if he is the God who is the reason you have breath to breathe when you wake up in the morning? If he exists, then saying we don't want to worship a God like this makes as much sense as saying we don't want to live in a world where we can't fly. It is what it is. We just have to deal with it. What we really be saying if we're saying that we can't worship or don't want to worship a God like this, what we're really saying with Lance Armstrong is that we're betting this God doesn't exist. We're betting he doesn't exist and won't hold us accountable. And friends, oh friends, please do not bet against him. He lives. Now, what I want to do to close is point you towards the promise of God's holy perfection. Like I said, this whole passage, necessarily the majority of the sermon, is about the threat of God's holy perfection because that's where it's seen most clearly in his commitment to judge what's wrong, including us. But that isn't the full biblical picture of how God's holiness intersects with our lives. If we, if we stopped it here, we would have a true but an incomplete picture In the wider context of the Bible, passages like this one that are all about judgment and God's holy righteousness, these are the passages that set us up to understand why the gospel is so beautiful when it shows up. They set us up to see the beauty of the gospel's promises because the gospel's promises are that we will receive this holy perfection as a gift and that we will take on this holy perfection through this power of God's spirit in us working to change us to make us see our sin the same way God does instead of justifying it and being bound to it by cords of self-deceit and falsehood those are the promises of the gospel I want to bring out two aspects as we close one is this the great exchange promised to us by the gospel that God will lay our death-deserving track record on Jesus and give us his perfection. This passage sets us up to understand why the substitution at the heart of the gospel, Jesus taking our sin and us taking his perfection, is as beautiful as, as the gospel claims it to be. We need to know, in other words, and acknowledge that the threat of verse 25 of the mountains quaking and of corpses filling the streets is not an empty threat. God's holy perfection demands that that verse come about. There's no way around it. And that threat, as this passage predicts, was not satisfied by Israel's punishment in exile. His hand is outstretched still. Some greater sacrifice was necessary if this threat was not to extinguish his people from the face of the earth. Some greater sacrifice was necessary if it is not to extinguish us as we deserve. But later in Isaiah, we're pointed to a solution. To a servant who stands in for the people and takes what they deserve. Isaiah 53 is one of the clearest descriptions of this servant. Reading Isaiah 53.10 in light of Isaiah 5.25 is so illuminating. Remember the picture of God's absolute and complete judgment and then hear this word from Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him it pleased God to crush his servant he has put him to grief out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied 
by his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, get this, make many to be accounted righteous. Same language as in chapter 5. God is holy in righteousness. We and his people are not. So verse 25 says, the mountains will quake and the, bo- and the bodies will fill the streets. And now in verse, in, in verse 10 of chapter 53, we're told it was God's pleasure to crush him instead. And by him, the many will be accounted righteous. He shall bear their iniquities and they will take on his righteousness. That's the picture of, of chapter 53 in Isaiah. And it makes a lot of sense out of, the, out of the story told of Jesus' death. Verse 25, this picture of the mountains quaking and of bodies filling the streets is almost a scene setting for what happens in Jesus' death. Jesus himself, the one whom God sent to bear the sins of his people, the perfect, holy, absolutely devoted to righteousness, servant of the Lord, he comes into this world to be rejected, to be abused and beaten and despised, to be killed. And verse 25 of Isaiah chapter 5 is the reason he had to die. Because there, on that mountain, all of the wrath of God against sin, everything that makes him God, everything that makes him holy and not like us, was poured out on this one chosen servant. Poured out so that even the mountains themselves quaked at his death, but poured out so fully and absorbed so completely that at at his death, with his dying breath, Jesus could say what Israel could not say at the exile, what no other sacrifice made in the temple could ever say. Jesus could say, it is finished, and his hand is outstretched no more because his wrath has been perfectly absorbed by his son. Jesus took what God's perfect holiness demanded, And in return, he gives to us what his perfect life earned. So that when God looks at us, what he sees through this great exchange, if we trust in Jesus, what he sees is Jesus. He sees us not for who we are, but as perfect in holiness, just as perfect in holiness as his standards demand we be. That's what he sees when he sees us. So claiming that promise, you don't have to fear shame. You do not have to fear what you have done wrong, even knowing that it deserves death because in Jesus you are perfect and clean. You own and have put on the holy righteousness of God. The promise is even more than that. The second piece to the promise that this passage sets us up to understand is that God will not just credit us with Jesus' righteousness, he will make us holy in ourselves. That he has sent his spirit to us to give us life. So that we're no longer bound to sin by these cords of falsehood and self-deceit. Those are broken by his spirit. The burden is dropped off. You are not who you were. And now, because of God's covenant, the promise that he will make all things new, starting with you, because of that promise, you are no longer defined by all of your past habits, no matter how addictive. There is nothing that cannot change by the power of the Spirit. You can put on the holiness of God, not just as Jesus' cloak, but in yourself as he changes you by his Spirit. That's why he gave his Spirit to you. The promise is that you do not have to stay in bondage. I don't care how bad it seems. So trust in him. He is holy in his perfection. And that is a horrible, terrifying truth but he is great in his love. And his love offers this perfection to you this morning. Father, help us to believe that this promise is true.
Protect us from the disbelief that comes natural. Help us to trust that even our greatest sins are not so great that Jesus' righteousness can't overcome them, that his death is not powerful. Help us to believe that no matter how addictive our patterns are right now, they are not too much for the power of your Spirit to break as you give him to us to make us holy. Help us to believe these promises. Help us to live from them and for them. We pray for your glory's sake. Amen.